My name's Andrew West. I'm a presenter at ABC Radio National. But the person that we're most here to hear and to see and to argue with, because that and debate with, is our special guest this afternoon, Peter Hitchens. There is no war on drugs. And there couldn't be, I think, a more provocative discussion to have in the final hours of this debate, of this festival. Peter is a distinguished journalist. Right now, he's a columnist at the Mail on Sunday. He's the author of the best-selling book, The Rage Against God. His latest book is called The War We Never Fought, The British Establishment's Surrender to Drugs. Peter has a long and distinguished history as a foreign correspondent in Moscow and Washington and in North Korea most recently. But as I say, our objective today is to challenge this idea. There is no war on drugs. And the man to make that challenge is our guest. Please welcome Peter Hitchens. I should make it clear here, I didn't actually live in North Korea, and I don't live there now, though I may, I may choose to do so after this afternoon's session. What is a dangerous idea? Uh, to begin with, the dangerous idea is one which makes conventional opinion, which I expect most of you hold, squawk with indignation and dislike the person who advances it. If it doesn't do those things, it isn't dangerous in the first place. I, for instance, uh, saying the F word on stage is now so conventional that it seems to me to be the opposite of shocking. Uh, being in favor of same-sex marriage is so conventional that it's dull. But saying, as I do, that there is no such thing as war against drugs is anything but dull because immediately swarms of persons descend on me shouting rude things at me and telling me that I'm an evil person. Some of you will have the opportunity to do that later on. But first of all, you're going to be asking me questions later, but I would like to ask you a couple of questions, first of all. To begin with, is there anybody here who has a totally closed mind? If so, will you please raise your hand? <laughs> right, okay. Well, the rest of you are going to have to prove that. The other question is this. How many of you sitting here have at any time in your life taken an illegal drug? Please raise your hands. It seems to me that my proposition is, is, is carried nam con. In any case, if there were a war against drugs, first of all, you wouldn't have done it, and secondly, you wouldn't dare own up to it. But let's move on a little further. A very evil and wicked and selfish campaign is currently being waged with a great deal of powerful money behind it, which if it concerned fair trade coffee or sweatshop trainers, would probably energize all of you in, in an enraged campaign against it. But because it's to do with the legalization or decriminalization or so-called regulation of mind-altering drugs, somehow or other this evil, greedy and cupidous and, 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 and how, how shall I put this, commercially and governmentally greedy campaign has very, very widespread support among the very people who look down on fast food chains and on all the other excrescences of aggressive global capitalism, and yet this is one of them. Why is that? Why is it that so many people are now captivated by the idea that the legalization or decriminalization of mind-altering drugs would be a good thing? Well, let's begin with the problem which I have first of all addressed here, which is the belief which is very widely held that there is somehow a wicked war on drugs often characterized as prohibition, which is cruel and draconian and ruins many lives unnecessarily. The reason why I wrote my book was because this seemed to me to be a severe anomaly. Huge numbers of people whom I knew took, take, allow their children to take these illegal drugs. The main growth industry of my otherwise economically and industrially decrepit country is cannabis farming. I'm not making this up. 
It is an enormous growth industry, and the, 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 every single city in, in, in Britain has an enormous number of cannabis farms, hydroponically grown, which the police cannot keep up with. Under those circumstances, how could one believe that there was a war against drugs? Then I began to look into the procedures in my own country, uh, which had been adopted by the government and by the police and by the criminal justice system, to deal with the possession of illegal drugs. And I found, it will obviously be different in Australia, but I found what had happened was this, that the authorities had maintained on paper laws which officially said that the possession of these drugs was illegal and carried certain quite severe penalties. But in fact, these penalties were very rarely imposed and that the police had almost entirely given up pursuing people for possessing these drugs. It's reached the stage where, for instance, at major rock festivals in Britain or in the Notting Hill Carnival, which takes place in the centre of London for two days at the end of every summer, people can quite openly smoke dope and nothing will happen to them, even though police officers are standing a few feet away, or metres, as I believe you call them here. <laughs> How was it that if these things were true, how was it that it could possibly say that there was a war against drugs? And then it occurred to me there was something very odd going on because government propaganda would ceaselessly say that drugs were wicked and evil and a great deal of concentration would be placed upon supposedly pursuing the evil dealers and the evil traffickers in these drugs. And yet when the drugs were actually sold and consumed, nothing happened. Isn't this odd? Now, what is it that makes these dealers evil? If they were trafficking in soap or scented candles, then there wouldn't really be any great difficulty, would there? The reason why the traffic is supposedly evil is because of the nature of the product which they're trafficking in. But when does the nature of the product become obvious? When does it actually do the bad things which we believe it does? When it is used. So why is it that the law looks on trafficking and sale as deeply evil and something to, be, something to be pursued so that we send naval vessels and special forces to Central America to, 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 to try and interdict supply, well, we do nothing whatever at all to interdict demand. It doesn't make sense. When I examined the whole history of the, of the legal position and the political position in my own country, what I found was that there had been a definite and clearly made decision by the British elite that this is what they would do, that they would pretend, mainly so that they could abide by international treaties, they would pretend to maintain laws against drugs, and also so that they could appease and reassure the remaining conservative voters, of whom there were quite large numbers, uh, that something was being done, while in practice abandoning any attempts to interdict demand. And it is obviously futile, if you wish to prevent the spread and use of something, to interdict supply and to do nothing about demand, for demand will grow and it will drive supply. So the idea of prohibition is itself therefore unsustainable. It's factually not the case. There is no such thing. As I say, you've, you've demonstrated here already. So why should we then care? I think there's a very powerful reason why we should care. And I doubt whether many of you will want to buy my book after I've read this. People seldom do after they've heard me speak. But I... I would like to recommend to all of you another book, which probably isn't on sale here today, which you can very easily obtain, written by my good friend Patrick Coburn, perhaps the greatest foreign correspondent of our time. But on this occasion, it's not about Iraq uh, or, or the Middle East, things about which he writes very intelligently. It's about his son, Henry, and it is called Henry's Demons, and I commend it to you all because it describes how... Patrick's son, Henry, whom I knew before this happened to him, went to a school, and this is the case in many schools in, in Britain, I don't know whether it is in Australia, went to a school where at the age of perhaps 11 or 12, he was introduced to cannabis. The drug which fashionable opinion tells us all is soft, and therefore harmless, a soft drink, no alcohol, a soft cop, a soft option. Soft means nice, but... It, when Henry started using cannabis, presumably he thought it was soft too. The trouble is that a few years later, he became seriously mentally ill. Uh, the descriptions of this in the book are very harrowing, and the impact of it on 
the life of Henry and his parents and his brother was enormous. And these are also described in a grueling and quite hard to cope with manner, but which I recommend you very much to read because it is very educational. And after Patrick wrote his book, what he found, and I, since I've raised this subject, I found it too, was very large numbers of his acquaintances who previously never said this to him, said something very similar had happened to children of theirs. Now, I'm not going to go in here to the enormous argument about evidence of the connection between cannabis and mental illness, because it's too complicated and it's, it's too detailed. And I also am very modest in my claims. I will say only this, that there is a serious correlation between the use of cannabis and mental illness being increasingly observed by doctors, and that the, the form of mental illness which follows from the use of cannabis, if this correlation is indicative, is one which is very hard to classify. So you might say that somebody who is at school and is bright and is doing well, who suddenly ceases to do so and then destroys his or her career prospects forever and a lot of other things besides, will never actually go through the filter of the mental health system. Many other people will become in many other serious ways dysfunctional. Other people will later in their lives suddenly suffer. Uh, serious bouts of mental illness. And again, since I've started writing about this, I've begun to receive correspondence from people describing all kinds of terrible tragedies overtaking relatives or, 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 or indeed husbands of theirs uh, who have thought that this drug was safe. So we have, at the same time, as the evidence is mounting that cannabis is actually seriously dangerous to mental health, we have a very powerful campaign to make it, and I speak of cannabis mainly because it is the most commonly used drug of our time, to make it effectively legal and therefore to make its use much more common. And the reason why I make this case and the reason why I speak about this at all is, is most fundamentally because of people like Patrick's son, Henry, either those to whom it's already happened or those to whom it is going to happen. Because if the law at this crucial stage is weakened, then the argument that these people have against the immense peer pressure, which all of us remember from our school days and our young years, the immense peer pressure which these people faced to take drugs will have no barrier with which they can defend themselves against it. If the criminal justice justice system can realistically be seen to be prosecuting people for possession of cannabis so that there is a genuine danger of serious damage to career prospects, the ability to travel to the United States, of obvious, available, present in people's lives, then those who come under that immense pressure will have a defense against, against cannabis, against the fashion which may well end with them in a locked ward, their lives ruined, and the lives of those who love them ruined. And this is a, another very important point because we are often told that the taking of drugs is a victimless crime. I can do what I like with my own body is the, the slogan, the mantra of the drug legalizer. Why should you, how should you dare to tell me what to do with my own body? And the reason is quite simple. It's not entirely your own. If you undergo the experiences which Henry Coben under, underwent, then many other people are affected by your decision to take the drug. If you become seriously mentally ill, mentally Ill, then your family and ultimately the whole state will have to take charge of your life in a way which is both emotionally extremely painful and draining and, and, and also very expensive. So there are victims and we are protecting victims by maintaining a law against this. So that's dealt with prohibition, and that's dealt with the idea that cannabis is a soft drug, and it's, it seems to me to deal fundamentally with most of the arguments for, for supposed legalization. We are, it seems to me, more or less at the moment with cannabis that we were at with cigarettes and lung cancer approximately 50 years ago, where it was clear that there was a link between the two, but it had not been established. Wouldn't it be extraordinarily unwise at that moment, to listen to the siren voices of the legalizers and decriminalizers and make cannabis as common in our society as cigarettes, just at the moment when it was most important not to do so. If you want to know
know why this is such a major cause. I think it is because the taking of the drug cannabis is absolutely at the center of the modern pseudo-religion which has taken hold of the, the generation which began with my lot when we were at university in the late 1960s and early 1970s. I, I call this selfism. It is summed up in the, in the, in the view that the, the human being is, is autonomous within his, within his own person and doesn't have to submit to any rules. There was something about cannabis, the ritual of the shared joint, Something about the adventure, the breach of law, the breach of convention, the defiance of the suburban moral system, which made the taking of cannabis absolutely central to the cultural revolution, which has overtaken so much of the Western world. And there are many, many people, I imagine in this room, who believe that it is a perfectly reasonable part of life, who allow their children to smoke it, uh, and who don't see that there's anything wrong with doing so and who will say, as such people often do, it didn't do me any harm. To which my reply is always, how do you know? How do you know what you would have been and what you might have been if you hadn't done so? So those are the, those are the most fundamental points that I, that, that, that I, that I wanted to make about it. Um, there is another very important aspect of this as well. I'm often confronted by people who say to me, well, how is it that when you, that, that you are, as I am, someone who campaigns very strongly for the maintenance of, of the traditional liberties uh, of people in, in, in countries such as this, uh, how is it that you can therefore campaign, as I do, for laws against the smoking of cannabis? Isn't this an interference with liberty? I would say absolutely the contrary. The freedom to stupefy yourself simply is not comparable with the great freedoms of thought, speech, and assembly. It doesn't have the same character. Worse, the freedom to stupefy yourself, which in my view is increasingly, if, if not exactly encouraged, not discouraged by government, has a very important second aspect. Aldous Huxley, in his great book, Brave New World, which I think increasingly turns out to have been a more accurate prophecy of the future than George Orwell's 1984, warned clearly in his depiction of the drug Soma, of a thing which he later described as his great fear that the people of the world would come to love their own servitude. The use of Soma in Brave New World, which is, those readers of that book will recall, was developed at great expense by hundreds of, of biochemists in a deliberate attempt to create a drug which would control society, is immensely important in making sure that there is no serious dissent. At one point in the book, it is actually used to quell a riot and the, the, the rioters end up weeping and hugging each other in, in, in pathetic group hugs after they've been sprayed with Soma. It seems to me to be a very, very good illustration of the effect of widespread drug use in society, and it deals also with a, a parallel development which has gone with the desire to legalize illegal drugs, which has been the very strongly increased use in our society of legal mind-altering drugs, and I think particularly of two categories, one antidepressants and the other the pills which are increasingly given, uh, Ritalin, Adderall and so forth, to children uh, in schools who are diagnosed with the mythical uh, complaint ADHD. The I'm glad you like that. <laughs> the whole approach of our society is increasingly, and let's, let's just move on for a second from ADHD to its companion, uh, its companion complaint, which is called oppositional defiant disorder, ODD. I personally have suffered from this since the moment I emerged from the womb. <laughs> and it is alarming to me, since I discovered the existence of ODD, that had I grown up in a and indeed had my late brother grown up in, a, in, a, in, a, in the society in which we now live, it's not entirely impossible that some genius might have thought that both of us would have benefited from a little course of Ritalin or Adderall to control our ODD. And this seems to me to be an immensely sinister development and one which people should be much, much more angry about. So, there is no such thing as prohibition. There is no war against drugs. The alleged war against drugs is filled with anomalies and contradictions which make no sense. It matters 
immensely to all of us because the disaster which could happen to any of us or any of our children if, 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 we, if, if this drug does trigger the mental illness which it appears to do is, is limitless in its, in its misery and desolation. It's time, it seems to me, that we examined in any case the immense selfishness which has settled over our society, and this is a very good place to start. The final argument, which I just would like briefly to deal with, which is urged against any, any attempt to, to control drugs, is the one which says, surely these cruel measures create huge amounts of misery in such countries as Mexico and Colombia and Afghanistan because the, the attempt to interdict uh, supply is resulting in the creation of, of illegal drug gangs and a terrible murderous trade which brings misery to millions. And I agree that this misery is, is huge and the disaster particularly to Mexico is, is, is almost limitless. My answer to that is this. The cause of this crisis is not attempts to interdict supply of drugs. The cause of the crisis is the use of drugs by spoilt Western rich kids who pour into this trade by, in their billions, pounds and dollars and euros, thereby creating a huge criminal enterprise which is uncontrollable. And if you want to know who the Mr. Big is, who lies behind this hideous trade, it's you. And if you stopped taking those drugs, which you so casually take, then that trade would die. Yes, of course, the prosecution of any kind of law preventing the distribution of, a, of, of an illegal and dangerous substance is going to be difficult. Of course, the enforcement of any law is so. And there is an important sense in which all crime is caused by law. And to plead, as drug legalizers so often do, that if we would only abandon these futile attempts to suppress drug use, we, the gangs would die, there would be no crime, is doubly absurd. First of all, I can't speak for Australia, but I'm, I, I can speak for my own country, and I've, I've spoken to experienced customs officers about this. The major gang activity in Britain is concentrated on legal cigarettes and legal alcohol, which are in one case smuggled and in one case distilled to avoid the enormous duties which are imposed on them. If any of you imagine that the British Chancellor of the Exchequer or the Australian Treasurer would resist the temptation to tax legal drugs as hard as they possibly could, then I think you're living in a world of fantasy. The existence of, of, of legal poisons in society, does not prevent criminal enterprise getting involved in them at all. Secondly, the point about law is that although it is difficult to enforce, we enforce it because we think it's worthwhile. And simply to say enforcing law is difficult, brings misery to those who are prosecuted, puts people in prison, uh, causes uh, policemen to do sometimes very unpleasant things, engages us in, 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 in long and protracted battles for control of the streets. That's not the issue. The issue is, is it worth it? And my fundamental belief is that it is worth it. That by continuing to fight, or indeed by starting to fight, because we've almost given it up, by starting to fight this war, we will save many, many people from tragedies unimaginable, lasting their whole lives, affecting many people beyond themselves and affecting our whole society. And what is more, we will, we will save ourselves from the considerable threat of being a stupefied, complacent society, which instead of confronting the many ills which are undoubtedly present in all modern societies, ills of poverty, of neglect, of broken families, of abandoned children, of corrupt government. Instead of confronting them, we sink into an armchair and dope ourselves into contentment. That's why there ought to be a war against drugs.
All right. Now, Peter, you're being far too modest. This is a beautifully written book. It's very witty. It's very provocative. And I don't think people will not buy it just because they disagree with it. I think, it's, I think it is real food for thought. We're going nice to have... You say so. <laughs> I've read every word. It, you are, after all, a Hitchin, so the writing is magnificent. We're going to take some questions soon. Uh, there's only one rule. You have to ask a question. They can be as pointed, they can be as critical. Peter is always up for a fight, but you must ask a question. Before we do that, though, there's a couple of questions that I want to ask you. There'll be a lot of people here, Peter, who saw David Simon's talk last night. David Simon, the writer, the producer of The Wire, he said that the war on drugs in America, though, has become a class war in the sense that the principal victims of that war are the poor African-American communities, people in the ghettos. They are being jailed where, for example, you know, the, uh, the, coke, the cocaine users on Wall Street, they get away with it because partly it's a matter of class, partly it's a matter of crack cocaine being prosecuted in a different way. I yeah, mean, yeah, how, how do you address that? Oh, point? easily. I mean, it's not an argument against prosecuting people for possessing illegal drugs. I'm an equal opportunity prosecutor, an equal opportunity incarcerator. Uh, if, if you take drugs, I don't care who you are. Uh, if you're caught in possession of an illegal drug, you should be prosecuted for it. Uh, be never so high, be never so rich, be never so white. I don't think that, that, that criticizing the, 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 the American state for, I don't, I, I simply can't answer the charge because I don't have the details to hand, but assuming the charge is true, criticizing the American state for failing to prosecute enough people is an argument against prosecuting anybody. It's an argument for prosecuting more equally. And I, I, I'm all in favor of the law uh, being above everybody. And uh, as I said, it isn't an argument on, against the principle of using the law to prevent people from doing something stupid and dangerous. How, how aggressive should the prosecution be, though? I mean, do you want people to go to jail? Do you believe in these three strikes and you're out I don't, want, I don't want anybody to go to jail. Jails are horrible places. Uh, I've visited a lot of them in many countries, and I, uh, I would rather that nobody went to them if it could possibly be avoided. But if people insist, if you, if you say this is against the law, and if you, if you do this, we're going to punish you, and they then insist on being punished, then I think they should be. Uh, the due punishment of responsible persons is the principle of any serious criminal justice system. But you do that not because you want to lock them up, uh, but because you want to frighten uh, people into not doing the thing that they've been locked up for. And it's half the purpose of criminal justice is, is deterrence. And when criminal justice is weak and deterrence fails, the amount of crime increases to such an extent, as it is doing in many Western societies, that crime has to be reclassified upwards so that many things which used to be crime cease to be. And the police simply can't cope and the prisons and the courts simply can't cope with the level of crime that exists. So we simply give up on large amounts of crime. And the, and the crime which is of course, created by the, by the drug trade in many, many forms is, is, is one of the curses of all modern urban societies. But we don't want to get to a situation like you've got in some parts of America where they spend more on incarceration than early childhood education or higher education. Well, I don't know whether you do or whether you don't. It's the, 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 sometimes you have to spend more on things than others. And for instance, there was a time in my country, I imagine it's the same here, there was a time in my country when people drove around on the roads drunk. And then we introduced the breathalyzer, and for a period there were a number of high-profile prosecutions, and people got into serious trouble for it. And as a result, they stopped doing it. You, to do that, they had to spend a lot of money in a concentrated period on the policing and on the courts and on the, on the punishment to make it clear that they meant business. They don't need to do so much of it now because people have got the message. That's how you use the law uh, to discourage antisocial, dangerous, stupid behavior. And it, that will mean that sometimes you have to spend more on one thing than, than on another. It, it, it's, it, it's just as, as, as it always has been, a matter of choice. Do you want to reduce the danger to, to the rising generation of ending up in a locked ward, unable to support themselves for the rest of their lives, and a, and a burden perhaps in their, in their late teens on parents aged 60 and 70? Or don't you? All right, well, we're going to go now. I think we've got the rich white kids over here and the Mr. Biggs over here. 
we'll go to um, microphone one first. Uh, g'day, mate. My name's Harley Jones. Um, I'm the man behind probably some of Australia's largest rave parties for the last 12 years, uh, upwards of numbers of 9,500 people per event. Uh, look, my question to you is, how does uh, legality define problematic? Is, is legality of a drug defining the problematicness of a drug, or does the legality of the drug just make it blanket outlawed? Thank you. I'm not quite sure I understand the question, but um, it, if, if, if some drugs are illegal, and they're illegal for, for, for very good reasons. I, I... Does, does the illegalness of that drug make it problematic, or does the problematicness define the no, legality? The, the laws against, particularly the laws against marijuana were, were devised and, and resulted from the, uh, the campaigns of Russell Pasha in Egypt in the 1920s, who was appalled by the, the devastation that widespread use of marijuana in that country had had on the state of, of, of young people there. And as a result, he went to the League of Nations and said, whatever you do, make sure that this doesn't happen elsewhere. It didn't really matter uh, until the 1960s when marijuana began to spread, uh, publicized greatly by the rock music industry, uh, began to spread, which has given it free advertising for years, uh, into much more widespread use. Uh, and at that point, it was, a, it was a good thing that we had laws against it, or it would be even more widespread than it is, and probably completely uncontrollable by now. But the law, the, the law, the law came after the realisation that the drug was damaging. We'll take it in turns. No, uh, microphone number two. Um, hello, um, my name's James. Um, I respectfully disagree with quite a few of your points. But well, don't be respectful, <laughs> for goodness sake. That's right. I disrespectfully disagree. Um, Put up your dukes, come on. <laughs> but perhaps most importantly, um, my biggest reservation against um, your argument is that um, I feel like we could have the exact same conversation about any dangerous recreational activity in our society. We could be talking about snowboarding, we could be talking about people drowning at the beach. Um, they, teach this, they teach this stuff in civics lessons. <laughs> it, it is, it's, it's, it's a standard boilerplate garbage. It'll be what about alcohol and tobacco next, and, and I'll deal with that too. Look, if you undertake a dangerous activity such as rock climbing or riding horses, you take quite serious precautions against the danger of it. Uh, you, you learn how to do it well. Uh, in the course of learning how to do it well, you become a better person. There is no training that I know of. Uh, well, need I finish the sentence? <laughs> The comparison is, 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 as we used to say when I went to university, specious. Um, and there's a ruder word, too. Uh, it, it, you, this simply is not an argument uh, for, 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 making, for making drugs legal. There is no comparison between these acquired, carefully trained skills which make a person more courageous and, 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 a, and a more fulfilled and complete person uh, and taking a drug which makes you stupid and quite possibly will drive you mad. You can have a follow-up. <laughs> but the difference is that um, with, with other dangerous activities, perhaps education, as you quite rightly point out, is, is, the, um, is the strategy used to, for, for harm reduction rather than criminalization. Why wouldn't education be a better, a better strategy for drugs? Well, we have it. We, we have it. And, 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 what, and, and what it says is, once you tell some... The, the assumption of harm reduction, this is also... So in the, the, the comical activity known as sex education. The trouble with harm reduction is it assumes that people are already going to do something stupid. And as a result, they take the message from that, uh, that doing that stupid thing is okay. And the, what, what's actually been achieved by the harm reduction so-called education is the increasing mainstreaming of what had previously been uh, an illegal frowned on activity. This is, this is propaganda. It doesn't actually put people off taking it. There is no safe way of taking a mind-altering drug. You might not be the person who ends up in the locked ward, but you might be. There, it's just any more than there's any safe way of playing Russian roulette. You might be the person who gets the empty chamber, but you might not be. There is no safe way. The only sensible advice to give to some, somebody proposing to play a game of Russian roulette is, don't do it. <laughs> Microphone one. 
Hi. Uh, your definition of drugs is fairly, obviously, a very umbrella term, which includes quite a diverse range of products, from cannabis to pharmaceuticals to, to kind of cocaine and so forth. What I'm fundamentally most interested in, though, is why do you subscribe to the accepted notion that reality, as we currently experience it, is the kind of only the, the be-all and end-all of a human's experience, and there is no benefit to be had from the epiphanies, the insights, the experiences that can be gained from mind-altering drugs? Well, I think that we, I mean, this, this of course, is, is the, the fundamental moral argument that we must all face. Uh, and for me, it's very simple because I believe that I'm a created being given certain uh, faculties uh, which have been given to me to be used. And I have senses of immense power and, in, in, and it, 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 immense intricacy. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made to be able to see, hear, smell, and understand without needing in any way to befuddle my mind with clouds of smoke or, 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 or chemicals. And it is not... There, there is no... Nothing. It is throwing... It is throwing... It is throwing... It is throwing the gifts of your existing senses in the face of those who gave them to you. And if you don't believe in God, then try your parents. It's throwing those gifts in the face of those who gave them to you to toy with your brain, which you do not understand, which even the most experienced and enlightened and, and advanced neurologists barely begin to understand by poking into it in various forms, chemicals whose impacts upon your brain you have absolutely no way of measuring or predicting, and which by taking you can actually destroy or ruin that brain. There, is, there, there simply is not any responsible argument for doing that. But apart from that, as I say, reality is given to us. It's beautiful enough, it seems to me, uh, as it is. And if you don't like it, then, as I say, the response to not liking it should not be for a moral person to turn in on themselves and dull their own perception of it. If you don't like what's around you, fix it, change it, reform it, help the person you see in trouble, don't dull your mind to their pain. I, that, is, that, that, is, that is the simple moral point. If you don't share that moral position, if you believe that, that the, the human has no duty uh, to, uh, to, to, to his parents to be responsible in the way that he treats the gifts given him, if you believe that you don't have any responsibility to reform and change reality for the better when it's bad, then of course we part company. But I don't think very highly of you. Can I, can I actually just come in there? I'll come to you in a moment. Can I come in there with a, a question, though, Peter? I'm a great lover of um, jazz music, and it's widely thought that one of the great yeah. exponents of jazz music, um, Billie Holiday, uh, at times her life was racked with drug use and heroin. Yeah. And out of that pain, though, came in this extraordinary narrative to music. I mean, do you acknowledge there may be occasions when the pain produced by drugs can, in fact, have some artistic merit? Well, I suppose it's possible. You'd have to ask Billie Holiday, really, whether it was worth it. I don't know when you see the way in which these lives end uh, that those who ended them in that way would, if they'd known where it would lead them, have chosen it. Is it are we prepared to sacrifice other people's lives for a, a little bit of passing pleasure on an iPod? No, not me. We'll go to microphone two. Um, I'm with you, by the way. I'm on the stance of against drugs, so just, just pointing that out. Careful on your way home. Yeah, very. <laughs> I, I will. I'm going to have to watch out for these guys. No, they'll all be too stoned to be able to yeah. beat him oh, no, up. <laughs> don't, don't you believe that one? Yeah. Well, at the same time, it's, it's very conflicting because I'm an I'm, I'm, I'm advocate for free will, so um, I, I guess... The, the problem is, um, how do we, as a society, tackle, um, you know, the idea of um, drug use and its and you know acknowledgement of its harm, and seeing that the harm, you know, is far greater than you know its art creative benefits, and governmentally, how can we? Uh, how can there's no legislation as you said it's too hard to like regulate and drugs are formulas are changing so quickly that 
you know, it's, it's pretty much impossible to keep up with it. Well, that's just, uh, this is an interesting separate issue. And one of the things, I, again, it may be happening here, it's certainly happening in Britain. Uh, the use, the increasing use of mind-altering drugs has led to a change in the way in which people drink alcohol. So that the, the, a, a large number of people, particularly young people in modern Britain, now drink solely to get drunk. Uh, in a way which was largely unknown 20 or 30 years ago. And uh, the, once you have established in society, once you have a no, no, I, it's, it's, it is an absolute measurable change. And if you visit the city centres of, of Britain on a Friday or Saturday night, now you can see it. And nobody who lived there would deny it. Well, you, you can see it here. Well, too. I don't know about here. I can't <laughs> speak for here because I don't live here, but I, I, I wouldn't be a bit surprised. Uh, but the point about it is that the, the, the whole, the, the whole the, once you have allowed into society the, the idea that self-stupefaction is okay, uh, then you unleash huge numbers of probably uncontrollable forces, these supposed legal highs and all the other things. And unless you are sending a very, very powerful signal, especially to the young, that deters them from doing this at all, it will become very, very common. I, I would love a society ruled entirely by conscience. If I were a utopian, which I'm not, uh, that would be what I desire. But I, because I'm not a utopian, I know that it's not possible. Uh, people's consciences fail them. All of us have consciences which fail us if we, if we acknowledge that we have consciences at all. That's where law comes in. I would love it if we didn't need to have these tedious laws and, and to prosecute people or to put people in prison. But where law has failed, or where, where, so where morality has failed, law must become strong. And our society is bringing this upon itself. It must choose. Either it... Either it take steps to control this, or we will find... Hey, look, this, the the Anglosphere countries are immense triumphs of civilization. They're almost unique in human history in, in, in having ordered liberty uh, and, and prosperity uh, on a level previously unknown in, in, in human civilization. And hang on a second. And in, in the, we see, we see the, the alternatives to this in, in, in China, which I fear very much is the future, which is, 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 has no liberty at all, but has, has a sort of prosperity. But the, this, this has been reached largely as a result of having a culture of considerable self-restraint. And if you throw that culture of self-restraint away, and drugs are very important in getting rid of the culture of self-restraint, if you throw that away, do you really think that this society of ordered liberty and prosperity will survive? It's a ticket to the third world. Imagine if drug use were effectively legal and widespread, how many occupations would have to be beset by incessant testing? You couldn't rely on your, your children's school bus driver not being stoned. You couldn't rely on the surgeon who was going to perform your operation or your airline pilot not being stoned unless everybody was being submitted constantly to compulsory drug testing. That, that, that is the, the consequence of this sort of c collapse of moral restraint. You, 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 you place immense chains on yourself. The less of this we have, the better. But at the moment, if, if, if we're to prevent this becoming general, we have, to, we have to mount a legal fight against it. Having said that, it's very, it's very it's easier said than done encouraging a culture to practice discipline and self-restraint. Of course it is, but, I, but, <laughs> but, but, but nothing, nothing worth doing is easy. Mm. <laughs> Mr. Hitchens, as a polemicist, you're clearly uh, inspired by faith and not evidence. Uh, in, 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 Holland, in Holland, where uh, cannabis taking in particular and other drug use is generally accepted, there's no higher instance of drug taking than the average throughout Europe. In Portugal, they've had decriminalisation for 10 years aligned with social programs and health programs, and they've seen a decrease in uh, drug use, they've seen a decrease in the negative health outcomes, they've seen a decrease in the crime, the associated crime that goes along with drug addiction, and a decrease in the prison population. Uruguay has recently legalised cannabis. They've set the price of it to be the same as the previous street-level price to uh, dissuade the gangs. The evidence is out there. It has been for many years, and there's increasing evidence coming. Will you not look at the evidence and accept that position? Why do you assume I haven't? Well, the point that I make in my book is that the, and which I will make here now for those who may or may not be going to buy it, is that the decriminalization of drugs in my own country is far, far more extensive than in either the Netherlands uh, or in Portugal. And the huge controversy about Portugal, there was a, 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 um, 
One report about it which has a lot of currency on the web, which is extremely unreliable. Friends of mine have recently visited it, and there is serious pressure to reverse a lot of the changes. Uh, it's not by any means as, 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 as simple as you claim. What is going, going on in Uruguay has yet to be tested. Uh, it's, of course, as I, as I say again, all, all crimes caused by law. You can, you can avoid all kinds of problems by not attempting to enforce the law, but then what about the other things which happen as a result? Those crimes in Portugal have gone down, for instance, the, the uh, petty well, theft crimes, the mugging, etc., they've seen yeah, significant I mean, reductions. You can, you can, it's, if, the, if the government mugs the taxpayer on, on, on behalf of the, of, of the heroin abuser, which is the case in my country to the tune of several hundred million pounds a year, then, of course, the heroin abuser doesn't need to go out and do any mugging, does he? But the, 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 if, if, why the government should become a thief on behalf of heroin abusers, I don't know. But that is the, the methadone program, which is the, which, which is the British government's response to this, and a largely disastrous and failed one, effectively does that. It says, we, 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 we will supply you uh, with a heroin substitute on the taxpayer. Uh, what many of the heroin abusers then do is go and sell the methadone, go and buy heroin. But it, it, it is, uh, that doesn't seem to me to be either a practical or a moral solution to the problem that people are ruining their lives. Do you want them to ruin their lives or don't you? I don't want them to. You don't seem to care much. <laughs> well, number two, we're having a rollicking debate. <laughs> uh, hello, my name's Sam. I just wanted to ask you uh, about the alcohol problem, which you say is so easy to address. My brother works in mental health, and everything that he deals with is a result of alcohol abuse. Mm -hmm. I understand that there is you know, a symptom of taking something could be abuse of that fact, but surely I don't understand how you can argue completely against, so prohibition instead of education, because alcohol consumption isn't always the problem, it's the abuse of that through lack of education and measures to help. Like, I'm just confused as how you can say it would be such an easy uh, thing to do. Uh, well, let me, let me deconfuse you. Uh, <laughs> the, if alcohol were now at the level of use in our society that cannabis was, and were as new to our society as marijuana is, I think most people in this room would be in favor of banning it. Uh, it's only because it's been in use in our civilization for thousands of years, as part of our culture is widely accepted, that we put up with it. Many of us will know from direct personal experience the devastating effect that alcohol can have, on, on, on particularly on family life, and the horrible things which result from it. And I, and I yield to no one in my dislike for it, and my desire for it to be very, very strictly controlled by the we threw away in Britain in the 1980s under the Thatcher government, we threw away very sensible laws against it, which it had taken 100 years to, 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 uh, to, to obtain and which had greatly controlled the menace. And it, we now have a, a, a terrible alcohol. But the problem is that you can't approach each problem as if it's exactly the same. Uh, because precisely because alcohol is so deep in our culture, it would be impossible to make it directly illegal. The government of Iran uh, officially prohibits alcohol use entirely. But because, in fact, Persian culture has, has, has long, and much Persian poetry has long sanctioned the use of alcohol, it's, it's very deep in, in Iranian culture, they have failed completely. Uh, whereas other measures, such as the, the strict licensing laws, which some of the Scandinavian countries have introduced and which we used to have, are quite effective. It's simply a different level of response. But what does seem to me to be absolutely the case is that we have in our society two disastrous legal poisons in the form of alcohol and cigarettes. It would be insane while we still, still have the chance to prevent it, to allow a third, a fourth, and a fifth legal poison in amongst us, wouldn't it? Microphone one. Uh, okay, so you're seeming to argue that making these things illegal will be stopping children from accessing them, but I don't think that's the case. Uh, shouldn't you be looking at why they're taking them in the first place? Um... Yep, sure. They take them because they like taking them and because their friends, their friends urge it on them. Uh, that's the, the, also the idea that 100% complete success will be, will be achieved by enforcing the law is, is futile. And we, we haven't, although murder is illegal and burglary is illegal and mugging is illegal, we haven't, despite enforcing the law against those reasonably efficiently, we haven't actually stamped them out entirely. They will still happen. Uh, and people will still get hold of them. If a law is seriously enforced, it will mean fewer people 
a considerable, considerably fewer people will, 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 will take them and, and, and have access to them, and those who sell them will find it harder to do so and will, to a great extent, be put out of business. Uh, I don't know whether you're trying to make some case that in, uh, that, that in a country as, 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 as prosperous and beautiful as this, people need to take drugs because they're so miserable, because I'm sorry, I always uh, complete confidence. Uh, I'd like to touch on something that you mentioned very briefly, which is about uh, well, legal pharmaceuticals like ADHD medication and antidepressants. Mm. Um, now, I suffer from depression, uh, a very dark form of depression has led to suicide attempts, um, and I'm just wondering why you would group ADHD medication and antidepressants, drugs which do genuinely help people, uh, into the same sort of category as a cannabis or, or a heroin. Well, um, because they don't, um, it, I can recommend to anybody here, and you can take this down slowly, uh, there are two articles by Marcia Angel, that's A-N-G-E-L-L, in the New York Review of Books, which are available on the web, which describe in detail, by reviewing serious books on the subject, how, uh, first of all, the serotonin theory of depression is not true. Uh, secondly, that the evidence that antidepressants uh, have any effect is thin to the point of non-existence uh, because the major drug, major drug companies actually suppressed, though they've been forced to disgorge under freedom of information legislation, the full range of their tests, which in many cases showed that the difference between the antidepressant and the placebo was non-existent. Uh, and thirdly, of course, there is the other point, that, in, that there is, a, again, a growing and frightening correlation I'm not going to comment on your individual case because it's none of my business. There's a growing and frightening correlation between the taking of, uh, particularly of SSRI antidepressants and suicide. Uh, and in, in many of them in, in the United States, the, 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 the packets in which they're sold have to carry warnings of suicidality. And you will also find, and this is terribly anecdotal, of course, but it happens to be true, that in about 80% of the rampage shootings, uh, in, in Europe and North America over the past 20 years, the culprits were taking antidepressant medication. Uh, this is, seems to me to be a matter for urgent investigation, and I, I don't know the answer to it, but uh, it would seem to me that with these facts available, it's time that we asked very serious questions about these things. This is not... This is not, this is not unscientific. I mean, the, 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 it, the, it's not at all a long time since uh, psychiatrists and neurologists were conducting lobotomies on people in the belief that these were uh, serious and constructive medical practices. It's now found not to be so. We don't know enough about the human brain uh, to do the things that we're doing with it. And I would be very wary of assuming that because the medical profession and the pharmaceutical companies claim that these things are so, that they necessarily are. We want to squeeze in three more questions. We'll go to microphone three and then to microphone one. Oh, hi, my name's Andrew. Um, as a police officer who pretty much sees the negative effects of our, uh, sorry, our alcohol drugs on society nearly every shift, um, my first question is um, what, what's the evidence to suggest that legalising drugs makes it more prevalent in society? And what am I doing to actually help drug users when I do charge them and I do prosecute them? I'm not, I'm not helping them at all. And I do not, like, there's nothing I can do to actually help them by actually prosecuting them, by taking them to court. It doesn't help them at all. So I'd like you to comment well, on as that. As I understand it, you're... Uh, did you say you were a police officer or a social worker? Police officer. Right. Your job is to enforce the law. Uh, you're not supposed to help people. Uh, your job is to enforce the law. If they... No, that's what, they, that's what we pay them for. Uh, that's what I, it's certainly in my country, they swear an oath to uphold the law without fear or favour. You're not a social worker. You're not there to help people. You're, you're there to enforce the law. And if people break it, you're there to arrest them for it and provide evidence for their prosecution. That's your job. And if you don't like doing it, then there's always social work. No, it, 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 def it definitely is my job, but the... By, by doing what I do, and I have no shame in doing what I do because it is my job, I have to uphold the law and all that, it, it doesn't well, help the individual. I you're not ashamed of it, no. No, no, well, the thing is, I, I see drugs all the time. I see the effects of drugs all the time. However, the actions that police take, it's not helping society. It just it really isn't. And 
the things that you've said today, like, I don't know, you, you're not on the front, you're not seeing it. I don't know, you're, you're reading on it from a theoretical perspective and you're looking oh. at, you, you have no evidence to actually back up a lot of the things that you've said, whereas there are people on the front line, social workers, police officers, people who work in the hospitals, they see the effects of drugs and by making it illegal or the fact that it's already illegal, it's, it's not helping at all. Well, the, it, you say making it illegal. I don't know why you're applauding that. Uh, it, the, um, you, you say making it illegal, and, the, and here is the problem. I, so I don't know the detailed arrangements by which this will happen in Australia, but I'm sure it does happen. I doubt very much whether your force uh, or your courts or your prosecutors have enforced the law against marijuana possession in any serious fashion for about 30 years. And no wonder, if you do that, that you have an awful lot of people roaming around the streets with drug problems. Uh, the... the, the the decision has been taken, usually by, um, by politicians, to allow this to happen. And, it's been, and ultimately, a police officer knows that he's wasting his time arresting somebody who's not going to be seriously prosecuted and not going to be seriously penalized, so the police withdraw from the issue. And that's, that's where you are. You talk quite rightly about if we're going to have a law, because effectively, if a law is not enforced, you don't have it. And the, the Western countries, by various means, in the United States largely by the fantasy and phony red herring of medical marijuana, and in my country by, uh, by actually officially letting people off, uh, have given up prosecuting or enforcing the law as passed by Parliament. So it, that's why you have lots of people uh, roaming around your beat or whatever it is you have who have got problems with drugs. But you're not there to help them, you're there to enforce the law. But I, I, I doubt very much whether your superiors would be terribly pleased if you did. Okay. I'm going to have to put on my radio presenter's hat now. We have two more questions. Very briefly, ma'am, a question at microphone one. I'm an obstetrician-gynaecologist practising in Sydney for over 30 years. I'd like to support your war on drugs and know that it does make a difference if we can keep it illegal. Um, because it does it visually, it affects their abstract thinking on the long term. And um, there are genetic studies that have shown that certain people with certain gene problems have a high risk of depression. So um, in the future, they'll be coming to that, um, where they'll be discovering more things about the connection because the brain development, especially when the baby's forming, um, it blunts the astrocytes. The other thing was... You know, we, we had plain paper, paper packaging brought out by the last government, and it was a wonderful thing. Anecdotally, education is not enough. Enforcement and social engineer, engineering is required. Well, thank you, Lauren. <laughs> Final question. Um, just with regards to the regulation of drugs, do you think that by regulating and maybe not making things so illegal that it opens the channels for people and removes the stigma for people to seek help with regards to addiction or problems they may face with drug or alcohol abuse? No, I'm sorry it's come at this stage, but I have to say I don't believe addiction exists. Uh, it's an excuse people make for, for, lack, of, for lack of human will. But the, the, there is no... I, well, you, you, you can giggle about it, but I doubt whether any of you who come up with an objective, uh, an objective definition of the presence of addiction in the human body, uh, because there isn't one. Uh, and, and, and once you've reached that point, you begin to realize what this is. It's a philosophical concept designed to relieve people of responsibility. I see absolutely no sign whatsoever that the current state of the law prevents anybody who wants to seek what's called help from getting it. I personally believe that if you've happened to th believe in the theory of addiction, or even if you don't, the, the idea that allowing people to become habitual users of drugs before anything happens to them is a bit of a mistake. If you really believe that it's like in French Connection 2, where you have a few goes of heroin and then you're, you're helplessly hooked for life, then surely... The thing to do is to prevent people ever having any contact with it in the first place by deterring them with, with severely enforced and believable laws. But no, the, the current state of the law, I, I, unless I'm much mistaken in this country, certainly in mine, is that there is no attempt whatever made uh, to make legal trouble for people caught in possession of heroin. In fact, there's a famous uh, supposed alleged rock star in Britain called Pete Doherty, who a couple of years ago was found in a courthouse having just been in court for possession of heroin with some several wraps of heroin in his coat pocket which fell to the floor of the courthouse and were observed by a security officer. And he walked free from the building. 
So there is no, even the, we're always told that we're, we're not going, we're going to leave off the soft drugs to, to, to free up the police, as it's always free, why don't they free them down, to, to pursue heroin uh, abuse. They don't do that either. There is, no, there is no legal deterrence for people to seek help. The problem is that when they seek help, the help they get tends to be a help which assumes they're going to carry on taking drugs, because that's the assumption of our society in general. We don't actually try to stop people from taking drugs. Well, the golden rule of journalism is the last question always yields the most revelatory answer. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for being part of this debate. It really has been a very feisty debate. Peter's book is called The War We Never Fought, The British Establishment's Surrender to Drugs. Peter Hitchens, thank you very much for coming to the Festival of Dangerous Ideas. <laughs>